Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 326. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. You will be pleased to know we have fact articles. We now have fact articles lined up well into the future. They're all kind of in and sitting there waiting to go. Today's is Science News by JJ Campanella. There we go. Back to normal. Back to normal reality there. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is the Science News with JJ Campanella. Then we have a little chat, little talk about the fantasy podcast. We have six names, rattled down to six names. There is a poll on the site that I've put it out in newsletters and it's on Facebook and Twitter. Go over and vote for that, but I'll tell you all about that later on as well. Then we have the main fiction is D. Thomas Minton. There you go. That is all coming up in today's Starship Show 326. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So, first up is Science News. Get them back into the fold there, Mr. J.J. Campanella. Greetings and cerebindinous revelations, my punctatious listeners. And welcome to this February 2014 Science News Update. I'm your host for this stunningly stunning science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Ah, wow, my Podcasts are seldom broadcast at the beginning of the month, and it seems like a year since I last spoke to you all. Well, since the last science news was January 1st, it's actually been almost two months. Well, I have many stories I have gathered in that time, and I shall try to tell you the most interesting in the short time that I have with you. The first story of the night is about horizontal genetic transfer. I know that sounds like part of a dirty joke, but... Let me explain. One of the things I always talk about in my genetics classes is about the process of horizontal and vertical transfer of genetic information. Most organisms, like a cat, a dog, a human, etc., only have vertical transfer of information. That can be defined as passing along information generationally through sex. Father and mother have children. Or you can even have vertical transfer in species like yeast or bacteria who just split into daughter cells. The daughter cells are the next generation with the information of the previous generation. While vertical transfer is what we are most familiar with, there is also something called horizontal transfer. That is picking up genetic information from other members of the same generation as you are without reproduction. Bacteria do this all the time. And it's why we have such trouble now with bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. Resistant bacteria have passed those genes on to other members of the same generation, which were not resistant. Well, in more complex organisms, 
That kind of horizontal gene transfer or pilfering is rather rare. You almost never see it in animals, and even in plants it's pretty rare. Apparently one of the most interesting exceptions to that observation is in the plant Amborella trichopoda. Amborella is a large evergreen bush or small tree that grows up to about 20 feet in height. The only common name that I could find for it is Amborella, which tells you that the only people who have actually noticed it are scientists. It holds an interesting position among flowering plants because based on its DNA sequence, it acts as a missing link between the gymnosperms, pines, spruces, etc., and all flowering plants, that is the angiosperms, which evolved afterwards. The species represents a line of flowering plants that diverged very early on in evolution, maybe 130 million years ago, from all the other living species of flowering plants at the very base of the genealogical tree of living flowering plants. Now researchers describe the plant's genes in detail, and it turns out that the species is even more odd than was thought originally. Amborella seems to be a major player in the use of horizontal gene transfer from other species. Dr. Jeffrey Palmer of Indiana University published a paper at the end of December in the journal Science, which finds that Amborella has captured not just pieces, but whole genomes from three different kinds of algae and a moss. Even more interesting, these captured genes aren't in Amborella's cell nucleus, but in the separate genome of the mitochondria, that is the little powerhouse of the cell. Palmer says, quote, The genes that Amborella swallowed now outnumber its original mitochondrial ones six to one, but so far, tests find little evidence that the hoarded DNA still works. It's an anal-retentive genome, unquote. You may scoff and say this finding seems rather unimportant, but what is amazing about Amborella is the sheer scale of the transfer and the evolutionary distance between the species. Amborella's incorporation of whole genomes fits with a so-called fusion scenario to explain how mitochondria manage their heists. It used to be in old textbooks that mitochondria were described as tidy, self-contained little capsules in cells. But this view has gone away in recent years as modern imaging techniques show them routinely fusing into tubes and branches. Since the plant's mitochondria can fuse with each other, Palmer thinks that they might also fuse with the mitochondria and algae and moss draping the shrub's branches, and so borrow DNA from them. Palmer's work also shows how uneven the results of gene-stealing can be. Genes in Amborella's nucleus don't show such a trove of stolen goods. That discrepancy makes it tricky to judge the role of genetic thievery in evolution. As if Palmer's paper was not enough, another paper in the same issue of Science from Dr. Douglas Soltis of University of Florida looked at the nuclear genome of Amborella, and he found that the plant contains repeated genes, which indicates that ancestral flowering plants must have duplicated their whole genomes early in their history. Soltis says, quote, That doubling may help answer how flowering plants came to rule the terrestrial landscape over the whole earth and do so much better than gymnosperms. Further genome doubling became common later in the evolution of flowering plants as a way that new species formed. It can help organisms take advantage of new opportunities. With extra copies around, some genes keep doing their old job while others are repurposed for some brave new world, unquote.
The next story is a quick exoplanet update. For the first time, it was reported in the journal Nature back in January that astronomers from the University of Chicago have used the Hubble Space Telescope to observe the weather on a super-Earth exoplanet orbiting a distant star. The team was led by Dr. Laura Kreidberg. Conditions on GJ1214b are cloudy, with an atmosphere so thick with water vapor or some other heavy molecule that observations of the planet's surface are nearly impossible. GJ1214b is the smallest and most Earth-like world yet to yield the secrets of its atmosphere, and its analysis suggests that clouds may be a common feature in many exoplanets that are out there. You may remember that super-Earths are planets that are larger than Earth but smaller than Neptune, and they seem to be among the most common planets in the Milky Way. Kreidberg says, quote, Those clouds would be unlike any on Earth, given the temperatures and pressures in the exoplanet's atmosphere. They could be made of zinc sulfide, for example, or potassium chloride, as both of those compounds would condense into microscopic droplets and thus form clouds under such conditions. It's the first time we've been able to characterize the atmosphere of an exoplanet smaller than Neptune, unquote. To compile their forecast, Kreidberg's team analyzed 96 hours of telescope time over 11 months. I guess that their patience was rewarded. Here's another space story. The NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory issued a press release on February 5th announcing that sometime between July 2010 and May 2012, a really big space rock slammed into Mars. That is a quote, by the way, a really big space rock. An image of the resulting crater released February 5th by NASA shows a scar about 30 meters across, which for us Americans is about 90 feet. According to NASA, impacts apparently are not uncommon on the red planet, which gets hit by more than 200 asteroids or comets every year. But very few of those crashes leave such visible craters as big as 10 automobiles laid end to end. And actually, there was even more damage than that. The photograph, available on the JPL website, was taken November 19, 2013, by the high-res imaging camera on NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Based on the blue and black blast zone that appears to explode from the crater, astronomers have estimated that the impact threw material as far as 15 kilometers away. Now, I know what you're thinking. Eat gads, 200 impacts a year. If Mars gets more than 200 impacts per year, why isn't this also the case for Earth? Well, it's actually not that complicated. I mean, it is the same for Earth. We're just better protected. Our atmosphere burns up most of those falling bits of space matter. And also, we're protected by the larger area that people don't live on, that is, the oceans. Most of those bits land in the oceans and not necessarily on land. Any longtime listener to this podcast segment will know that I have talked for years about being able to wipe bad memories from the human mind. Traumas often last a lifetime, and many people would be grateful for release from that pain. There have been a number of breakthroughs in this field over the years that I have reported. I think that this next story is just the latest and most promising of all my reports. In a study published in January in the journal Cell, Dr. Li Hua Sai of MIT found that compounds called histone deacetylase inhibitors can weaken long-term fear memories in mice 
when combined with exposure-based therapy. These compounds interfere with the function of the enzymes that remove acetyl chemical groups from histones. Histones are the proteins around which DNA is wrapped. So by removing those acetyl groups, it allows them to wrap DNA more tightly and close it up so that it cannot be read and activated. Loosening up the DNA increases the access of transcription-initiating enzymes to genes involved in memory and learning. So tightening it up helps to remove memories and forget, presumably. This process could have stable, broad, and long-lasting effects on gene expression, potentially making it suitable for permanently modifying traumatic memories, as you find in post-traumatic stress disorder. In this new study, Psy repeatedly exposed mice to a sound tone paired up with a foot shock at the same time. Every time the tone was heard by itself, the mice would later freeze in fear. Initially, to get rid of that sensitivity, the researchers repeatedly exposed the mice to the tone without delivering the foot shock. When this process took place one day after the mice were exposed to the tone shock pairing, it was effective at reducing the fear response to the tone. However, if the researchers waited up to a month before delivering the treatment, it was not effective. That was presumably after the mice learned to associate the tone with the shock. The memory was in their heads, and it was pretty much going nowhere. On the other hand, that exposure-based therapy combined with inhibitor treatment was effective at reducing fear. Even when given one month after the mice were exposed to the tone shock pairing, it was actually quite effective. Moreover, inhibitor treatment increased the expression of genes that affect the communication between neurons in the hippocampus, a brain region that plays a crucial role in learning and memory. It would seem this should work like a dream, inject and they forget. However, nothing is ever that easy. Histone deacetylase inhibitor treatment alone did not produce the changes in gene expression or the behavioral benefits in mice with one-month-old fear memories. It was only effective if the researchers combined the cognitive behavioral and pharmacological strategies together to effectively treat through traumatic memories. As far as I know, this is the first report of a successful effort to attenuate remote fear responses in an animal model of fear memories. It may have a long-lasting impact on the treatment of not just soldiers, but people who have been traumatized by slightly more prosaic scariness at home. The next two stories fall into a category that you might call nutraceutical stories. That is, foods that recently have been found to be better for you than you may have suspected. Well, first up, we always knew that milk does a body good, as the commercials say, but it may do us more good than we ever knew. Milk has been long touted for its uh, nutritional value, since it is a natural source of protein, calcium, phosphorus, and a bunch of other vitamins required by the human body. In addition, a mother's milk is prized for playing a key role in the development of the infant immune system. But aside from nutrition, in recent years, milk has gained recognition as a rich source of potentially therapeutic proteins and peptides. In particular, short proteins in milk have been demonstrated to have a variety of functions, such as antimicrobial, antiviral, antioxidant, immunostimulatory activity, and antihypertension activities. Milk peptides have also been used to treat Alzheimer's disease and have even been used as morphine-like pain receptor blockers. These peptides are embedded in native milk proteins 
and can be released via protease cleavage. According to a study in the journal Dairy Science last month by Dr. W.J. Chen of Taiwan University, a peptide derived from milk is effective at killing gastric cancer cells. Gastric cancer is one of the most deadly forms of cancer with about 21,000 new cases diagnosed and about 10,000 associated deaths in the U.S. every year. The short peptide called lactoferrisin B25 was derived from a longer peptide found in cow's milk called lactoferrin, which is known as an antimicrobial agent. When incubated with gastric cancer cells, the smaller peptide reduced cell viability by inducing pre-programmed cell death in the cancer cells. The concept for the study stemmed from earlier findings which demonstrated that ionic antimicrobial peptides, including lactoferrin, could selectively bind to and disrupt cancer cell membranes without conferring subsequent drug resistance. Another study in the journal Food and Function last month from the lab of Dr. R.J. Fitzgerald of the University of Limerick suggested that dipeptides could be released by enzymatic digestion of milk proteins that inhibit dipeptidyl peptidase 4. That is an enzyme which is involved in glucose metabolism. Inhibition of that dipeptidyl peptidase results in an increase in the levels of the hormones glucagon-like peptide 1 and glucose-dependent insulin-tropic polypeptide. Increases in those two enzymes leads to suppression of appetite and increased survival of the beta cells in the pancreas. Those are the ones that secrete insulin. This all results in better health and lowered blood glucose levels. The authors of the study suggest that biofunctional hydrosylates could be used to release bioactive dipeptides from milk proteins in the development of novel type 2 diabetes treatments. At this point, listeners are rushing to their fridges and chugging gallons of milk. Please don't. You have got to remember that even though those hormones and enzymes are present in milk, They are not exactly present in huge amounts. In addition to that, they're bound up to other proteins. Both the scientific studies spent a good deal of time isolating those products from gallons and gallons of milk or using cloning methods to express them artificially at high concentrations in bacterial cells. Unfortunately, there is little evidence right now that they will either prevent cancer or diabetes at the concentrations that you would find in a normal glass or two of milk a day that most people would drink. But at least it's nice to know that for once, I don't have bad news about something that we eat every day. The second food story is about cranberries. I guess this would have been more appropriate back during the holidays in December or even November around Thanksgiving, but here we are a couple of months away from that. I didn't even come across this news until the last couple of weeks. The study from December was published in the journal Food Chemistry, by Dr. Katarzyna Kowalska's lab at Poznan University of Life Sciences in Poland. Kowalska found that cranberries reduce the generation of fat cells and make those cells slimmer as well. Kowalska says, quote, These results are the first to point out the anti-adipogenic properties of cranberries. Generally, we should eat fruits and vegetables, but it's good to know which of them exhibit anti-adipogenic properties. Unquote. Anti-adipogenic properties means they keep fat from forming. Wahoo! Cranberries grow wild throughout the marshy North American New England coast and were a staple of Native American cooking before the Europeans arrived here. 
They are also a major crop in my present home of New Jersey here. For years, researchers have known that cranberries are packed with healthful compounds, from vitamins to minerals to polyphenols. And they've investigated cranberries' effect on numerous human conditions, such as urinary tract infections and cardiovascular diseases. But Kowalska was curious about whether they had any effect on fat. So she and her team gathered Polish cranberries, and the species name is Vaccinium oxycoxis, and these are in the same genus as the American berries, Vaccinium macrocarpus, but they bear smaller, pale pink berries with a sharp, acidic flavor. The researchers added varying concentrations of a solution made from freeze-dried powdered cranberries dissolved in cell culture media in mouse preadipocytes. Those are cells which are destined to become fat cells. After 48 hours, they saw an effect. Preadipocyte proliferation slowed and the cells became less viable directly in proportion to the concentration of the powdered cranberries used in the culture media. Kowalska then stimulated differentiation of the preadipocytes into mature adipocytes and found that high doses of cranberry solution reduced the viability of mature adipocytes and also increased production of reactive oxygen species that are known to play a role in programmed cell death. Additionally, when cranberry solution was added to preadipocytes actively maturing into full-blown fat cells, the cell number, viability, and metabolic activity dwindled depending on the cranberry concentration. The resulting adipocytes also contained less fat. Cranberries stimulated the breakdown of fat in mature adipocytes as well, depending on concentration, and also appeared to inhibit lipogenesis in the first place. The molecular mechanism for all this is still unclear. So Kowalska used molecular methods to find that the cranberry solution suppressed expression of those specific genes that induce differentiation of the preadipocytes into fully mature fat cells. So which one of the many biologically active compounds in cranberries was at work here? Well, the researchers theorized that quercetin may play a role. Cranberries contain as much as 25 milligrams of quercetin per 100 grams of fresh fruit. And other studies have shown that the compound prevents proliferation and can induce apoptosis, programmed cell death, in cell cultures. Previous research has also shown that quercetin interferes with the process of adipogenesis by interacting with the transcription factors mentioned above. Another possibility are anthocyanins, uh, the red pigment about which I actually just published an evolutionary biology research paper last month, and uh, they've also been shown to inhibit proliferation of preadipocytes and fat cells, adipocytes. However, Kowalska says, quote, it is more likely that the many polyphenols in cranberries all work together, and it is not just one, unquote. The researchers emphasize that they need to conduct animal and clinical studies to know for sure whether cranberries' effects will extend beyond the lab, but for now, enjoying a bit of the berries in your stuffing or salsa can't hurt. Stay away from the sauces, though, with lots of sugar, however. Kowalska says, quote, The best will be fresh fruits or frozen fruits or low-caloric juices. Probably once we add sugar to the cranberries, we change any of the anti-obesity power of this fruit, unquote.
For those of you who love the Winter Olympic Games, game theory, and statistical analysis, you're going to be intrigued by the next story. According to Dr. Eric Zitzowitz of Dartmouth University, we are going to be in for some interesting skate judging during the Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia. The Olympics are in full swing while I record this story and should be over at the end of the month when you hear it. The story from the February issue of the Journal of Sports Economics may have you rethinking some of the matchups and their results afterwards. Zizowitz says that judging scandals from the past may haunt us and get even worse. At the 2002 Winter Olympics, five judges allegedly arranged to rank a Russian figure skating pair first in exchange for the Russian judge giving high scores in other skating events to athletes from the colluding countries. In response to that and other judging scandals, the International Skating Union decided to stop reporting which member of a judging panel issued which score. Anonymity was seen as a way to discourage vote trading. Zitzowitz says that anonymity caused the reverse to occur. Favoritism towards skaters from one's own country and vote trading jointly increased by about 20% after judges went incognito. The research reports that although the 20% increase is not a statistically significant rise relative to corruption levels observed in 2002, it's still potentially enough to alter the results of close competitions. Zitzowitz previously estimated that in the 2002 Winter Olympics, figure skaters moved up about two places in the final standings if a judge from their home country sat on the scoring panel. He says, quote, making judges' votes secret in Winter Games held since 2002, further increased home country favoritism. I recommend reinstating public disclosure of each judge's scores. If the sport provided an easily accessible database, independent researchers could check for signs of bias and corruption. Additionally, a statistically savvy review committee would help keep judges honest, unquote. Zitzowitz analyzed judging from three data sets of major figure skating championships and events, including the Olympics. His first data set was the pre-reform data covering 16 competitions from 2000 to 2002. At that time, judges' identities were posted and majority rule determined skaters' placements. A second data set covered 23 events from 2002 to 2004 in which the judges' identities were kept secret. Scores of several judges on each panel were dropped at random to discourage vote trading. A third data set consisted of 107 events from 2003 to 2009. Further rule changes included having judges combine objective ratings of the difficulty of a skater's program with subjective scores for skating skills and other aspects of a skater's performance. So what did he find? Well, in the pre-reform sample, Zisowitz found that judges tended to give higher scores to competitors from their own countries. Skaters also benefited when a judge from their own country sat on a panel at the same event for a skating competition other than their own, an indirect sign of vote trading. After 2002, skaters' scores rose further when they were judged by panels that included a compatriot, Skaters also continue to benefit at events where judges for competitions other than their own included someone from their homeland. Zitzowitz says, quote, Selection procedures for Olympic figure skating judges need to change, perhaps taking a nod from another judged winter sport like ski jumping. Those judges were selected by Ski Jumping Central Committee for the 2002 Olympics and showed little or no bias or vote training, unquote.
I want to end the night talking about one of those ideas that I swear has been in SF for like 70 years. Telling you this story means that I will have to move back into the realm of hardcore particle physics for the end of my segment, which I have to admit makes me a bit nervous because it is certainly not my forte in any way. Additionally, I did not realize until recently that one of my old friends from grad school at University of Chicago and a one-time roommate is a listener and contributor to the show, Dr. Rob Scherer, now Chair of Physics at Vanderbilt University. Rob, be patient with whatever naivete that I fall into here. I know I'm a geneticist and not a physical scientist at all, but sometimes stories are so cool that you just have to pass them along. So Dr. David S. Hall from Amherst College and his group of researchers reported in the journal Nature this month that they have made a synthetic monopole. Listeners may remember that magnets all have a south and a north pole. Well, a monopole is an atomic particle that has a magnetic charge on it, not an electric charge on it. The existence of the particle was theorized 80 years ago by physicist Paul Dirac, one of the founders of quantum physics. Anybody who's been reading SF for a long time knows that whenever some hack writer wants to come up with a way of making an anti-gravity device or some new kind of hyperdrive, they very often invoke things like monopoles. The particle itself is a point source with just a single magnetic pole, as opposed to having two poles. That seems like a weird idea when we consider our everyday experience with magnets. So we've all taken full-size bar magnets and noticed that their ends either attract or repel one another. And again, the ends are the poles, and every magnet has one end that is a north pole and the other that is a south pole. Opposites attract. That is, a magnetic north pole attracts a magnetic south pole. But the same pole repels from one another. For example, north and north repel and south and south repel. Magnetism is a little like electric charges in chemistry or physics, which exhibit the same attractive and repulsive behavior involving positive and negative charges. Now, if you take a bar magnet and break it in half, you do not get a monopole. You simply get two smaller magnets, each with a north and a south pole. Now, the really cool thing is it doesn't matter how many times you divide a magnet down and break it in half, you can keep breaking it down to the molecular level and you will always have a North Pole and a South Pole. There's no way to make a solitary pole or monopole that acts as a single point source of the magnetic field by simply breaking your magnet into something smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, no natural monopoles have yet been discovered by particle physicists. My reading suggests that the energy of a single magnetic monopole is theoretically so huge that if it were completely used to recharge a battery of like an electric car, the vehicle could travel for kilometers and kilometers. I mean, that suggests why no one has yet seen a magnetic monopole in a particle accelerator. It simply has such a huge amount of energy in it. I'm surprised the military is not funding more research in the area. I mean, one background paper that I read suggested that if the mass of a magnetic monopole really is as big as they think, the energy released from the collision of a negatively and positively charged monopole would be as much as the energy released in the explosion of a kilogram of dynamite. In 2009, Alto University researchers Ville Pietila and Miko Motonen, the eventual collaborators with David Hall, published theoretical results demonstrating a method to create 
Dirac monopoles in a Bose-Einstein condensate. Now, a Bose-Einstein condensate is sometimes considered to be the fifth state of matter, in addition to solid, liquid, gas, and plasma. In this condensate, the importance and location of individual atoms becomes kind of vague, and the system behaves as if it were a single large atom. Piatilla and Motonin's idea involved using external magnetic fields to rotate the atomic spins of these particles. A Dirac monopole would form in the condensate as a result of the spin rotation. Now, I admit, I don't entirely understand that. But that was the method that was actually adopted by Hall and his colleagues to create the synthetic magnetic monopole. The Dirac monopole forms in the artificial magnetic field of the condensate, not in the physical magnetic field, which steers the spin degree of freedom. Thus, a natural magnetic monopole is not needed to create the synthetic monopole. I really find this kind of story so neat because I heard of monopoles so many years ago when I started reading SF as a kid. But frankly, except for basic research into the further nature of quantum physics, I am not sure what the creation of a monopole means. I suspect in the long run, it may not give us flying cars, force fields, low-energy wormholes, or faster ways to get to Mars. But that's no reason not to dream. I guess my ignorance of quantum physics really helps me to imagine all sorts of things are possible sometimes. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Remember to chow down on those sugar-free cranberries so you can keep your cute girlish figures. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, what can I say, sir? Thank you so much. So, we have been, you know, I mentioned kind of in the Meta Show, and I've been kind of kicking it around a little bit as well. And last week I put out a call for narrators and an editor as well. Well, there we go. We have one now. So, Gary, thank you so much for standing up there and coming into the fold of that, the new exciting podcast. So, and I mentioned as well, we still ain't got a name for it, but we've had kind of, you know what I mean, there is, there was a kind of spreadsheet, there was a Google Docs, you know, with all the kind of names that everyone's been sending in. And I got Nicola, who's going to be the host over there with everyone else, to kind of whittle down, you know, pick the, 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 the kind of the five that we wanted. And these are the five. And actually... At the last second, I threw in the kind of the working title, which was Far-Fetched Fables, Far-Fetched Fables. That was being our working title. That's what all our documents are named and everything over there. So I threw that in as well. So these are the names that are going to be up for vote. Legends of Lords and Ladies, The Fellowship of Fantasy Fables, Myths, Magic and Meaning, Free Flight Fantasy, The Footing of Fanciful Figments, and far-fetched fables now those are out and like i said just this morning about an hour ago i kind of sent it all over the kind of the social media field there just kind of scattergunned it newsletters facebook twitter and google plus and shall i give you just what because it it should sorry the closing time is this sunday basically i want to announce it next week and then get the domain you know what i mean get things going so it closes this Sunday. Now, shall I tell you what, where we are with the votes? Just to give you a little sneaky kind of, you know, a little glimpse into it. Or shall I not? Well, I'll tell you, what, I'll tell you what's actually in the lead. Uh, actually, in the lead by mm, quite a few, do you know what I mean? Is 
far-fetched fables. The bloody one would be... <laughs> The one we've been working with all along, that's the one that seems to be kind of streaking out, you know. you are Not streaking out, because I say there's a, there's a couple close behind it, but, you know, got a few votes, that one. So it's up to you. Do you just want to go with that? Do you want to get on that? You know, it's only a little poll from Poll Daddy. Come over to the site. All you do is click on, and then you'll actually see how the votes are going when, you, when you've done your voting as well. So at the moment, Farfetched Fables is in the lead. That's all I'm going to say. So, let's get into the main fiction then. And it is by D. Thomas Minton. I'll give you a heads up about D. Thomas Minton. D. Thomas Minton recently traded a tropical Pacific island for the Pacific Northwest of the continental USA. He now lives a short walk from the vineyards and an alpaca farm. Because of the miracle or its curse of modern technology. He still moonlights as a tropical marine biologist, and at any given time he can be found working in his garden with his wife and daughter, and too many cats. What? Working in the garden? <laughs> what, Thomas? This story as well first made its debut in, that fantastic, as I mentioned before so many times, John Joseph Adams' Lightspeed magazine. Minton is a member of the Science Fiction Writers of America and his fiction has been published in forthcoming in a variety of magazines and anthologies, including Asimov Science Fiction and Lightspeed Magazine. Now, this story you're about to hear is narrated by Josh Roseman. Now, Josh, I'm going to actually read, I'll read his bio because I always kind of, kind of oh, Josh, Josh. But I know he's a, he's a good regular on the sofa, but it's lovely to have kind of, what a voice, man, just commanding, do you know what I mean? Just tells a great story. Josh Roseman, not the trombonist, the other one, lives in Georgia, the state, not the country. His writing has appeared in Asimov's Escape Pod and Cross Genres anthology, Fat Girl in a Strange Land. His fiction has been reprinted by the June Steve Audio Fiction Podcast and Starship Sober. His voice has been heard on two escape artists and four District of Wonders podcast. He is a 2013 graduate of Taos Toolbox. Is that how you pronounce it, Josh? I don't think so, do you? Josh also says as well, you can get his story Secret Santa on the Kindle. So how about that? There's links to all where you can find Josh as well. So Josh, big thank you again. Like I say, lovely narration. So, the Starship Sober is very proud to present... The Schrodinger War by D. Thomas Minton You'd think after seven tries, I could get the living part right, or at least be a pro at dying, but both are still messy and painful. At least dying doesn't scare me anymore. I yank Olszewski back into our wrinkle of black basalt before the Edies missed his head. Keep it down, I say, my voice tinny in the helium trimix of my armor's helmet, as if it matters, if the Edies don't get him. Something else will. To either side of me, prone soldiers in combat armor bead the lava like dewdrops on a burn victim. Overhead, sunlight reflects off an arch of orbiting debris, which, in another fifty million years, will coalesce into the Earth's moon, the same moon under which I will lie as a kid, fantasizing about fighting space aliens. A streak of fire scratches the sky. A shooting star. Olszewski says. His chuckle crackles through the radio link. Make a wish. He's a first in-car, fresh down the well from 2075 or some such. Like most firsts, he's gung-ho and stupid and won't live through the day. I'd like to think I wasn't as stupid as Olszewski, but I suspect I was. Then I died, 
and died again. And again. Voices buzz through the radio link. The Edies are forming up across the no-man's land for an assault on the prize, a steaming pool of long-chain proteins, RNA, and probionts that may one day evolve into Earth's higher carbon-based life, provided we stop the Edies. Cut the chatter, Tanner says. He mutes the squad's mics. The sudden silence presses on my ears. I've known Tanner since we were first in cars. He was a good soldier then. He's a good leader now. Olszewski pops up again. Before I can pull him down, an Edie Sonic shears the top half of his body clean off, the atoms of his suit and every living cell vibrated apart by the high-energy noise. The pink mist floats away on the methane wind, and Olszewski's legs tumble over like felled trees. If he's lucky, his genetic algorithm never finished transmitting to H-Station, and he can find peace in the big dark. The big dark sounds good. It doesn't matter if Christina is there or not anymore, either. I hope she is, but fuck it. I scramble over the basalt lip and charge the cluster of black lumps in the distance. If I hadn't known what I was looking at, I never would have recognized them as alive. Featureless lumps of metalloborane, no head, no eyes, only a hole that periodically gapes open, presumably to breathe when it isn't emitting blasts of high-frequency noise. Sam, what are you doing? Tanner asks. Behind me, soldiers scramble from the trench into the glassy no-man's land. The Edies rotate toward us. Their orifices open. A sonic blast glances off my armor hard enough to knock me down. I struggle to my knees and launch an O2 cluster bomb. The skittering pellets explode, washing the Edies in reactive oxygen. Their bodies fizz and glow, catch fire, and burst. Edie Sonics shimmer across the battlefield. The wine grates my eardrums. My right arm vibrates, all the molecules shaking like ping-pong balls in an earthquake. I'm lifted off the ground, spun around, and I lose all track of up and down. Then the glassy basalt crashes into my helmet plate and my feet flop over my head as I fold in half. Red mist covers the right side of my visor. I struggle to recall who had been next to me. Warnings flash across my HUD. Suit breach, and I realize my arm is gone. Whatever hasn't spray-painted my helmet has been splattered into the wind, but I'm still alive. Damn it. I'm still alive. I lie on my back, laughing at my misfortune through the haze of pain blockers. Overhead, meteors etch fiery lines across the sky like tiger claws opening up skin. They trace graceful arcs that any time else would have been beautiful. I remember the time Christina and I made love in a Nebraska wheat field beneath the Perseids. They were beautiful. She more so. Through the narcotic haze, I sense something wrong. But it takes me a full minute to realize what. One of the lines is shortening and growing brighter. Pressure sensors scream as the hammer of air pushed in front of the dropping meteor crushes. I sit up, clutching my right arm and gulping bites of air. It's okay, Sam. We made a full recovery. Kim's hand is soft and smooth and warm. H-Station's recovery room is a morgue, antiseptic, and harshly lit. Odd, because H-Station is a mathematical construct cycling through nanocores lodged in Hilbert space. You'd think they could create something more friendly to wake up in. Algorithms or not, the cold metal beneath me burns against my balls.
At the foot of the table are a folded flannel shirt and familiar denim jeans broken in by hard use. Kim rips a sensor patch from my neck. I grab her wrist, a lightning-quick reflex that makes her gasp. Kim's face is different again. Her narrow eyes have grown rounder, the sharpness of her nose is dulled, and her hair, once black and thick, has lightened to a sun-bleached tan. Today, her hair is pulled back into a ponytail, revealing a morning-clean face with freckles splashed like the Milky Way over her cheeks and nose, the same as... I release her and pull the shirt over my shoulders, focus on pushing buttons through their holes. Kim rubs her wrist. I'm sorry, I say. I should have warned you. She turns away as I pull on the jeans. When I look up, a desk and a chair have appeared and the morgue table is gone. The lights have softened to the gold of a Nebraska sunset. As a new recruit, I had found H. Station's sudden shifts disconcerting, like the architects had gone to great lengths to create the illusion of a real world, but had never finished the programming. Like living in a movie, the unimportant stuff had been cut away leaving only the scenes necessary to move the story forward to its inexorable climax. I've never taken a shit on H-Station. The chair squeaks as I sit. The leather cools my back. A window behind Kim opens onto a field of wheat and a curtain of blue sky. Sometimes that window has familiar Colorado mountains, or a slice of Caribbean beach, or a hillside of golden poppies. Tanner thinks we have subconscious control over what we see on H-Station, and that Kim uses this information in her work. Can you tell me what happened? A meteor, I say. It isn't what she wants. But if I give her what she wants too quickly, I would have to leave. Kim taps a yellow pencil against her cheek. After every recovery, Kim is here. I sit in the same chair and answer the same questions. The only thing different is the view out the window, and the way Kim looks. I got hit by an Edie. Out the window, the wheat bends over in an afternoon breeze. I expect to see Christina in her jeans and floppy hat, checking its ripeness by the angle of the heads. The lump in my throat hurts. And how did that happen? You getting hit. Each visit, I find it harder to concentrate on the interview. I get distracted by what lies beyond the window, or the changes to Kim's face, or the clothes I'm wearing. I see ghosts of my past everywhere, but I know they're not here except in my head. No matter how I try, I can't seem to get rid of them. Every death seems to chip away a flake of my sanity. Eighths and ninths talk about not being whole anymore. As a third, I thought it would never happen to me. When I was a sixth, I fought it. Now I'm a ninth. I sighted the enemy and I charged. I feel oddly disconnected from the room and the moment. When I blink, I see Olszewski's legs tumble over on the back of my eyelids. Something that horrible should have crippled me, but it didn't faze me at all. How many were recovered, I ask. There was no order to advance. What were you thinking when you made the decision to charge? I don't get paid to think. You don't get paid at all. A half-grin slides across her face her lips parted to reveal perfect teeth. Christina had perfect teeth. My knuckles pop as I crack them. The noise surprises me, and I look down at my hands. The scars I remember having are gone, because they are not part of my genetic algorithm. The physical ones, that is. Why did you charge? 
I forget sometimes that Kim knows everything that happens on the battlefield. These post-recovery sessions allow her to learn why. Kim has been tasked with optimizing our fighting force. H-Station sits in Hilbert space, just up well of a white hole that opens into the solar system four and a half billion years in my past. H-Station is a haven of sorts, safe from the Edies, but disconnected from space-time as we humans know it. It's also the critical junction point for downwell travel, because you can't send matter downwell, only information. In this case, a soldier's genetic algorithm, a multidimensional information array that captures a person's genetic code, and a neural map of the brain. The problem is, H-Station can only hold a limited amount of information, so Kim is searching for the optimal soldiers to fight this war. So we fight, and die, and learn, and change, each time spawning new in-cars that Kim tosses back into her battlefield experiment. At some point, one of our in-cars will reach the zenith of our martial skill, and Kim will delete the rest of us. Why did you charge? Kim asks again. I saw an opportunity. Kim doesn't say anything. Does she know I'm lying? Kim resumes tapping her pencil against her cheek. How do you feel otherwise? Like hell. I just died for the eighth time. Fair enough. Kim's pencil scritches against the pad. With her head down, I see her scalp in the wide part of her hair. The skin is pale and smooth. The familiarity unsettles me. Is that all? I ask, wanting to get away. She doesn't look up from her writing. Are you ready to go back? No, but it's what I signed up for. H-Station is a maze of memories half-remembered. Maybe it's the shared human condition, distilled by algorithms into surroundings that are both numbingly generic and achingly familiar like the wheat field outside Kim's window. When I first came down well, nothing about H-Station was familiar. Yet each time I come back, I see more places that remind me of my past. I suspect it has something to do with Kim's work. This time, the processing room is a smoky bar with a low ceiling and barely enough space to breathe. It reminds me of the beaten honky-tonk on the outskirts of Omaha, where a fresh-faced girl from the wheat fields snookered me a forty bucks at eight ball. She was nice enough to share her garlic fries with me, confident enough to kiss me afterward, and stupid enough to spend the rest of her life with me. Why do I remember this? There's no pool table here, and the air smells of anticipation, not garlic. I recognize a few faces. Most are firsts and seconds I don't want to know. Against the wall, with his arms crossed, Tanner raises his chin to catch my eye. I slide through the crevices between conversations, but before I can reach him, a woman grabs my collar and kisses me on the lips. Hey, lover, she breathes across my cheek. From the patch on her uniform, I see she's a fourth, but I've never met her before. You've mistaken me for someone else, I say. She frowns. You don't recognize me, Sammy? Then she sees the patch on my shoulder and looses an expletive. Sorry, she says, straightening my collar. I knew a third. I raise my hand. She knows an earlier in-car of me, a third, but not my third. I don't know how many different in-cars of Samuel Holman exist, but each one is spawning branches in the probability function that is me. 
Kim is betting that one of us is an optimal soldier. Before I can say anything, the woman turns her back to me and pretends I don't exist. I continue through the crowd until I get to Tanner. He shoves a glass tumbler in my hand, vodka, on the rocks. I see from his patch that he's a sixth. Tanner arches an eyebrow when he sees my own patch. Lava? he asks. I've served with many of Tanner's in-cars, so there's always a good chance we can find common ground. Tanner and I decided long ago not to associate if we had more than a four-in-car difference. Too much personal misery to overcome. Methane explosion? he asks. I nod, recognizing how I died as sixth. This in-car knew me two or three lives ago. The lines pinched into Tanner's forehead relax. So, a ninth, he says. Still no command. My patch has the crossed swords of a G.I. grunt. I'm not leadership material, but it looks like you are. Tanner flushes. As a sixth, this is his first command. Who's the fourth, he asks, motioning with his glass. She's hot. I shrug. Never met her, but that doesn't mean I didn't. Tanner makes a noncommittal sound. He's died enough to understand. As a second and third, I screwed everything and anything willing. There are probably three dozen in-cars making it in the bar's back room right now. Dying is still scary to them, and they don't fully appreciate that they'll be back again. And again. To cope with the fear, they seek solace in the most base and carnal of human actions. It's a way to forget, at least for a little while. Tanner searches the bottom of his glass and asks, is it still worth it? He knows he isn't supposed to ask questions like that. It violates our agreement. Even so, I find myself answering. I don't know, I say softly. Tanner frowns. I've said too much. I remember being a sixth when I started to realize the senselessness of the dying. But we're still here, so we must win. The uncertainty in his eyes is gut-wrenching. That isn't how it works. Our lives are an arrow, always moving forward, and we can never know the future until we get there. The future has no bearing on my past. If we fail to save humanity, I won't simply poof out of existence. I'm fighting the Edies for some other humanity. I'm not fighting for Christina, because she's lost three years in my past, and while one day there may be another Christina, she will not be my Christina. That thought drains the noise from the room, and all I hear is the roar of silence in my ears. My drink tumbles from my shaking hand and shatters on the floor. What the hell am I doing here? The conversations crash in around me like a cave collapsing. I can't make out any voices or words. It's all just noise. I leave Tanner standing alone, staring into his glass. The noise dies around me as new deployment orders flash across my visual cortex. It's time to die again. I inch to the top of the trench and peer through the heat ripples distorting the no-man's land. I can't be certain that I've been here before, but I get an unsettling sense of deja vu. I've heard ninths and tenths talk about rejoining battles they've already died in, and sometimes even meeting earlier in-cars of themselves. It's never happened to me before, but if it did, 
I think I would tell myself to find a way to put an end to the circle, to join the big dark. My HUD picks up movement and zeroes in on a line of EDs half a kilometer away. Like a train of charcoal briquettes, they move in formation across the jumbled basalt, venting trails of pinkish gas from their orifices. I slide down the trench and check my weapon. Working on military muscle memory, I chamber an O2 grenade without thinking. By now, others have seen the Edies. Chatter pollutes the comms. Keep it down, Tanner says. The second in-car on my left stares at me with saucer-big eyes. For a moment, I see Christina's face through the helmet shield. Not her face as the cancers ate her body, but her face on our wedding day. Even though her hair had already fallen out, she never looked more beautiful. I squeeze my eyes shut. I have done everything I can to forget her and make the pain go away, but she never seems to leave me. The recruit with big eyes touches my shoulder. You okay? she asks through the private touch link. I recognize her now. I know her, or at least who she will be. Her sixth saved my life back when I was a fourth and paid for it with her own. I died a few seconds later, but I've never forgotten her. A few more deaths, and she'll be a good soldier. I brush her hand away. I'm not okay. I came down well to get away from everything that reminded me of what I've lost. I needed to kill something, to become less human, so I could stop feeling. What Christina and I had is too strong, however, and now it eats at me, like her cancer ate her bones. My only way out is the big dark, but I can't have that. My teeth vibrate painfully as Edie's sonics discharge nearby. The chatter in my helmet ends as Tanner kills the comms so his order can be heard. We're to lay down a wall of O2 and make sure the Edies don't flank us. It all strikes me as pointless. Get down, Sam! Tanner's words jar me, and I realize I'm standing and firing my weapon over and over. My HUD tells me I've launched a half-dozen O2 grenades as a seventh wumps from my launcher. Across the smoldering cinder, an Edie swivels. Its orifice opens, and the world ripples. I close my eyes and see Christina. My heart starts to vibrate and come apart. You're safe, Sam. It takes a moment to put a name to the voice. Not Christina. Kim. It hurts, I say. It's not supposed to hurt, because I am no longer that person. But it does. It'll pass. Your brain is still reconciling what happened. The cold metal gurney presses against me. Shivers rack my flesh. Try to calm down, she says. I raise my head from where it's tucked against my chest. This time her eyes are amber flecked with gold. They aren't Kim's eyes. That isn't Kim's face. We made a full recovery, she says. No, I say. Her brows pinch together. I know she is checking H-Station's data core, confirming a full recovery of Samuel Holman, 10th Incar. But I'm no longer complete no matter what the genetic algorithm says. Kim helps me to a sitting position, and I pull on the clothes at the foot of the table. When I look up, Kim is sitting at her desk, 
Outside the window, aspens quiver at the edge of a lake, glassy smooth and filled with clouds. I recognize the place immediately. The Montana cabin where Christina and I spent a week every summer, and where, tell me about this place, Kim says. I am surprised for a moment by the change in script. No. I expect her to pry, but she doesn't. Backlit, Kim's ponytail is pulled so tight she looks bald. The silence picks at my resolve. I exhale, and my body deflates like a punctured bladder. Every summer, we'd come to this place. This is a special place, then. I hate this place. The lump in my stomach threatens to come up my throat. Christina died here, the day after we were married. I have never talked about Christina with Kim. I'm sure she knows about her. She knows everything about me. Kim's pencil stops, frozen mid-tap. Everything seems to stop. The shimmering trees, the clouds on the surface of the lake, like the program that is H-Station has crashed. She had been diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. They tried chemo and radiation, but it didn't work. The cancer spread into her lungs and bones. When the doctors gave her a week to live, she asked me to bring her to the cabin. We were supposed to have a life together. Christina is motionless behind the desk, the pencil frozen near her perfect lips. It's not her, I tell myself. I want to forget, because it hurts. I hear a pounding sound that starts in time with my heartbeat, but slowly slides out of synchronization. When I blink, Kim's pencil is tapping again. Is that why you volunteered? There are as many reasons for joining up as there are soldiers. What does it matter if I came here to lose my past? It's not like I volunteered as a way to commit suicide. My fingernails are square and perfect, not chewed to the quick like when I enlisted. Every time I'm recovered, the scars of living are polished from my surface. Everything back there reminded me of Christina. The way the wheat bent was her smile. The smell of sunshine was the fragrance of her hair. Now, everywhere I look here, I don't want to go on. Kim studies me quietly. After a moment, she says, That's not up to you. You have nine in-cars of me, and probably dozens more I don't know about. Why can't I retire? There is no retirement here, Sam. Kim's lips continue to move, but I don't hear her through the pounding of blood in my ears and the rasps of breath through my lungs. Those are the sounds of life. But I'm not alive anymore, so how can I make them? Kim scribbles on her pad with her pencil. Then she looks up at me. I need you to go back. The words stab me like a cruelly curved knife can't go back there. Why can't Kim see that? I'm finding it hard to be a good soldier, I say. I don't know what I'm fighting for anymore. Maybe you didn't come here to forget. Maybe you came here to remember. It sounds like something Christina would have said when I was belly aching about something ridiculous. You need to go back one more time, Sam. My HUD flashes to life with new deployment orders. I squeeze my eyes shut but I still see them on the inside of my eyelids. It's time to die. Again. 
the basalt crunches like broken glass as I step off the dropship. More ships streak in low across the crimson sky, their engines sun-flaring as they pivot and drop. The clouds glow as the orbital battle continues. Each flash is one of our ships bursting and burning. A concussion wave from a distant explosion vibrates my faceplate. Even though the surface battle is a kilometer away, first and second in-cars dive into a laser-cut trench at the edge of the drop circle. Their chatter is loud and fast in the comms. A ship booms overhead and skims the battlefield, stirring up dust and sulfur steam. From its bottom, cluster bombs whiz toward the ground. They explode, killing Edies and humans alike. My third in-car died from friendly fire. It had been painless. A bright flash, intense heat, like I had been dropped into the middle of a supernova, and then I awoke on H station with baby new skin and another hole in my psyche. My visor lightens as the flash fades and the glowing battlefield cools from white hot to red to glassy black basalt. Tanner taps my helmet, opening a touch link. Orbitals picked up an ED incoming. We got ten minutes till this place gets hot. He dashes off toward the rally point. The last dropship lifts into the red sky, vanishing slowly into the methane clouds like a fleck of copper sinking into blood. For the moment, the world is quiet. The edge of the landing zone drops off into a steaming pool of scummy organics and proto-life. In a hundred million years, this pool will be teeming with the first anaerobic life forms, which will produce oxygen as a waste product of their metabolism. It's oxygen that will make this world uninhabitable to the Edies, and will make it my... No, it will never be my home. I close my eyes and see Christina's face, beautiful and smiling. Every minute I had with her is something to cherish, not forget. Maybe Kim is right. Damn her. Movement to my right catches my attention. A third has stepped up to the edge and is looking down into the steaming pool. Maybe he's thinking about throwing himself in. It's hard to say with a third. They're a critical transition in-car from the wide-eyed newbie to either a well-adjusted soldier or to someone who will eventually be like me. I'm not sure why, but I place my hand on his shoulder, opening a touch link. It's not high enough to even damage the suit, I say. When he turns toward me, I stumble back. He grabs my elbow and saves me from tumbling over the edge. His face has the same lines as my own, only fresher, and the same eyes, only more alive. He shows no recognition of who I am, even though he looks into his own face half a dozen deaths later. I am no longer the same person, but am I so damaged he does not recognize himself? But he is also not the same person I was as a third. He has been shaped by different experiences, and today he will likely die a different death, which will make him a different fourth, and a different fifth, and so on. Yet in his eyes is the shadow of our common bond, and I know this grief will force him down a path parallel to my own. His eyes narrow, but they do not yet glimmer with recognition. You okay? Afraid he will release my arm, I seize his wrist to keep the touch link open. I've learned something recently, I say softly. Our past makes us who we are today. If we forget what happened before we came down well— then our past is only this, war, dying, and more dying. 
How can that be good for anyone? I, his eyes widened then, and he sees what could be his future. But I also know he's smart enough to realize the future holds infinite possibilities and that I am not necessarily his fate. It's too late for me. My scars are all below this perfect skin, but I am only one possible future for Samuel Holman. How many of my thirds are out there, forging new futures, and trying to get it right? Maybe, because of me, this is the one that will get it right. Wait! I release his wrist, breaking the touch link. I move toward the rally point. He follows me at a short distance, but stops when our HUDs come alive. The EDs are here. Time for me to die. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is the Thomas Minton. Tom, thank you so much. Honestly, what a great story. And Josh, just made that story made it totally thank you so much and jim nice to have you like to see it back in the fold that is it for starship sovas 326 i do hope you will oh, do. yeah i know i know i'll tell you why because i'm a bit i'm gutted that's why i was all set i've had this you know what i kind of on the meta show you know when i did it i mentioned i was doing this kind of secret project secret project i didn't give anything away well, part of that project is I was getting a hut. And if you kind of know where I live, well, you can actually see on Google Google Earth and everything like that. We had two huts in. I'm lucky enough to have like a, a kind of garden that was actually a back lane. And we put like a big fence up and she's claimed the garden. And there's actually about four houses that have this garden. But where I live, it's kind of next door neighbours, she's an old girl, you know what I mean? And then there's no one really lives next door. That's an empty house. You know, so basically that's our garden. And we had two huts in there and one's kind of wrecked and fell down almost. So we we wanted a nice, and I thought, oh, that'd be a great workshop. You know what I mean? That's what, that's my kind of little dream is to have a little workshop. You know, Starship's over HQ. If anybody can make a name tag for the front of the door, there we go. There's a, there's a shout out. It was all set to come on Friday. And I got a phone call just a few hours ago saying he's lost a guy who kind of helps him put these kind of huts up. Because it's, it's, she's a big old girl. Well, she's a big old girl for kind of little villages. you know what I mean? It's a 14-foot-size hut. And it's not coming till next Wednesday. So you'll hear us bleating on about it on the next week's show. So it's not cutting. I'm like, oh, I just wanted me hut. Because obviously I'm getting internet in there. I'm getting like electrics and heat and everything like that. And it's going to be like a little workshop for us. So... My, my mind's been, and, oh, just fun in me toy. <laughs> so that's coming. I'll let you know how that, uh, like I say, it's coming next week. So if anybody can do Starships over HQ, I want some sort of kind of plaque or some sort of thing to hang above the door, go on the door, something like that. You know what I mean? Just uh, kind of, I'm going to take a photograph and Twitter it. There you go. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, Evacuation Procedure Initiated.
two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.